Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 225. We're recording this live on November 11th, 2021. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Good morning. How the devil are you? I am I am devilishly good, Barry. <laughs> Thank you again for midnight mid, midnighting what is moonlighting with us. Uh, we, yes. we got a great show for you tonight. We're actually going to be talking about man versus machine and who to trust when you go to the doctor's office. And later we're going to answer some questions from the community about what to do when recruiters are weird. Uh, what do you want to see from a start menu? And the most important questions when hiring a UX designer and or researcher. But first, we have some programming notes here. Uh, we're excited to announce that our coverage of Ergo X is started. Uh, we the preview's out now, so we've we've done a preview of Ergo X. Um, you know, we had some scheduling conflicts during the conference itself, so we'll have to wait for that thirty day window before we can actually see the talks. But if anyone went to Ergo X and wants to leave us a voicemail about your experience, please do drop us a line. You can go to our website and click the little voicemail in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, and in other news, we have joined Team C's. So if you are unfamiliar, Team C's is an effort uh, uh, across many different content creators uh, with the goal of removing 30 million pounds of trash by January 1st, 2022 from the ocean. So they're basically, uh, they've equated $1 of donations to one pound of trash removed from the sea. And uh, this is started by Mark Rober and Mr. Beast. Uh, we are now part of Team C's. And to kind of make sure that this effort does not go unnoticed, we here at Human Factors Cast are going to be producing eight standalone Human Factors Minutes available for everybody. So this is also available in your feed now. Uh, you've heard the first one this week. It was about uh, what Team C's is and what our plans for Team C's are, kind of what I just told you, but you can listen to it now. Um, we have eight episodes coming out uh, through the end of this year, and like I said, that's free to everyone. Normally, our Human Factors Minutes are for our patrons, but uh, this is too big of an effort to just keep to that small pool. So go check it out, teamc's.org, um, and I think... I think we'll leave it there. Let's go ahead and get into uh, the, we know what you're here for. You're here for the news. Let's... That's right. This is part of the show about human factors news. Barry, what's the story for us this week? So this week we're looking at whether doctors should rely less on mental shortcuts when deciding patient care. So algorithms and analytics are now commonly used by professional sports, in sales forecasts, lending, de lending decisions, and car insurance providers. But researchers are suggesting that it's time for doctors to stop relying on their use of heuristics uh, when making decisions about patient care with limited cognitive resources. So heuristics are the mental shortcuts that we're talking about. Using health, uh, electronic health records more of more than 86,000 infant deliveries, they found that delivering physicians were influenced not only by the indications of the current patient, so the one that they're currently working with, but also the outcome of their most recent delivery. So they're not suggesting that physicians use these mental, uh, the, sorry, the, the, the physicians use these mental uh, shortcuts lack exper expertise or training, but the research demonstrated it's a common tendency even through uh, amongst more experienced doctors. 
They've offered several suggestions, including the use of um, artificial intelligent decision support systems to help physicians overcome their reliance on maladaptive heuristic or their own decision rules. So, Nick, are you convinced? Should doctors give up their gut feel for AI? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It makes sense to me. Um, Doctors are humans. Humans make mistakes. AI has progressed over the years by a lot. Uh, and I do think the future of, of healthcare is artificial intelligence. I really do. Um, you know, I think there's there's that happy medium of uh, having sort of the doctor play a supervisory role when it comes to artificial intelligence. And that's kind of the future where the system can look at sort of hundreds of thousands of data sets and determine what's best for the patient. And as long as nothing's fishy, the doctor goes, all right, yep, good. Let's do it. Um, and they can kind of use their expertise to to judge that fishiness, right? The, the, anyway, what, what are you thinking about this article? I My gut feel is to go along with what you said, but I'd also then maybe play devil's advocate with that um, because whilst AI is the future and we'll go into, um, we'll go into the, the, that in a bit more detail, um, is it there yet? Is it actually... Um, truly thinking in a way that can actually do diagnosis in a way that uh, that humans can. Um, humans make mistakes, that, that's true, but actually the way that the, the human brain works is still way more powerful in the way that it dives into um, problem solving and being able to pull together abstract pieces of information. I mean, one of the quotes out of the article when you read is, most of the time the heuristics do save time and resources and they produce pretty good outcomes, but in some situations, pretty good is not good enough. So even then, they're sort of admitting that um, the way that humans do things does work most of the time. Um, but then, I, I've, coincidentally, I was watching um, an, a couple of episodes of House this morning. And I don't know if anybody uh, watches House, um, but that is um, looking at um, a group of people who are doing basically advanced diagnostics and and diving into really weird problems that the um, that are not standard. Um, and so they're having to use all sorts of, of their own um, cognitive abilities to solve the problems, or at least according to the script writers, they do. But the um, that's kind of the, kind of the thing is, is the that level of diagnosis um, and and having to do the investigation real? And would an AI be able to do that in its current form today? My gut feel is that no, it wouldn't. Um, you know, it, it, we just don't know enough. But that's not to say we're not terribly far away from the future. Um, and then my only last thought is doing that checklist. Is it going to have uh, an impact into people's times? Um, in, in, sorry, into people's lives in the time that it takes to go through a checklist where if we have the heuristics and we recognize what we're looking at and just dive straight to it, which checklisting doesn't really allow you to do. So I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm going to sit on the fence as, as painful as it could be um, and say that, yes, we could do it, but we're not there yet. But I think is I think this is a good point to maybe use dive into some of the uh, the HR principles around it. So should we dive into some of that? Yeah, I think let's let's start with maybe heuristics in healthcare and then get into um, sort of the algorithms piece of healthcare. So let's take it from the psychology side of things. And, uh, you know, they, they mentioned these mental shortcuts. Those are heuristics. And uh, it, there's some research that suggests that some of the most common decisional sort, shortcuts that are used in medicine um, so the field of medicine overall are, are availability, anchoring, and confirmatory heuristics, where um, 
you know, representativeness, overconfidence, and band- bandwagon effects are also prevalent in medical practice. So we're looking at, I just listed off a whole bunch of names there. We'll go through them one by one and talk about them. But those are typically the most common in medicine and medical. So do we want to talk through these um, heuristics or, I guess, uh, mental shortcuts one by one, Barry? Yeah, we can do. I mean, if I'll... Um kick it off with the availability heuristic so um it's the um the the i guess um best way to describe it it it's the um, decision based on you know things that you already know things that are familiar to you things that um um lend themselves to what uh, to your current knowledge and and therefore whatever you're seeing fits with your fits with your your model um and so because that information is available to you then you'll automatically jump to it Yes. Then we have anchoring, which is kind of latching onto that first thing that you hear or understand that first piece of information, right? So uh, in a way, I think this article is almost um, suggesting that anchoring is happening with the most previous delivery, at least in this case. They're they're kind of using that as as an example. And and we can talk about that when we get to more on the article discussion, but uh, kind of taking that one piece and making holding it as the most true when when making a decision yeah um you can also dive into confirmatory so doing something and then um whatever sort of action you're taking actually has an effect so that's so uh, things are confirming what you uh what you think you already know and whether it might not be right but uh, but because it keeps on um confirming the your initial thoughts then you're going to um anchor yourself in into that a lot more um because it keeps it keeps on um giving you that confidence that uh that what you're doing is the right thing yeah and then you have the representativeness heuristic this is kind of um this is kind of looking at an event and comparing it to what already exists out there and and basically uh thinking or using that mental shortcut to think that what is true in one case is representative of many cases. Um, and, and again, this is kind of with that previous delivery, you might go, okay, they had a cesarean. It might be true that a cesarean is a better, um, sort of method of birth in, in this case, because it was, I used it last time. Therefore it might be good this time. It's kind of representative of the sample of that doctor. I, I think I think I did an okay job describing that one. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> basically it's estimating you, probabilities. I'd say when you dig into these, it's not as easy as you think when yeah. you when you bring it out. Maybe my um my overconfidence in in my my judgment of being able to deliver this is, is far outweighs my the accuracy in the way I'm describing these, and that is a great example of, of overconfidence. Um, basically, overconfidence is the um, you have more confidence in your own judgment than actually the the accuracy in, in what um, the of what you're actually delivering, um, uh, or the the accuracy of your judgment itself. So you're basically just being um, too mouthy about it. Yeah, and then last up here we have the bandwagon uh, heuristic or bandwagon effect. This is you know if everyone's doing it, then it must be right. Um, you know, every we talked about crypto in the pre-show. Everyone's investing in crypto; it must be right. Um, mm-hmm. So that can happen in medicine too. So you know, one example would be if there's a procedure that has worked in 
several cases as kind of a, a breakthrough procedure. It might be that everyone sees that as the new big thing and maybe there's some additional study that needs to happen before that is in fact the, st the status quo basically jumping on because everyone else is doing it so i think that's a that's a pretty good overview of some of these heuristics that we're talking about um in the healthcare field you know and i think just overall heuristics are mostly positive but again kind of the it depends factor right it can have sort of these negative consequences if it's not being used correctly, right? We've talked about them a little bit in a negative light here in the sense that uh, that there are almost biases biases mm -hmm. in, in this case. But I think in, in a lot of cases, it actually does end up affecting patient care positively. The fact that they have these mental shortcuts that they can take to get to where the patient needs to be can often you know, it, it is a shortcut. It's it, they're they're taking that step to, um, cut and not cut corners. I, that that sounds negative, but it is to it, it's the it's the speed accuracy trade off that we're talking about here. How quickly do you get patients care? Uh, depends on the speed by which you can diagnose those problems, and so they are using these mental shortcuts to cut through some of that, um, the that process noise. Yeah, and I, th I, th I think you're absolutely right there because I think the, again, it goes back to what we were saying earlier in that um, particularly uh, general practitioners or people who are in, uh, say, the emergency rooms and things like that have to make really quick decisions really quickly based on fundamentally their own experience and their education. So as soon as they see something that looks like something else, that they've that they've had experience of, so it it may be based on something familiar, so leading on that um, availability or or anything like that. Ninety nine percent of the time, that's going to take you down the right route um, to be able to save lives because that's that's what they're that, that's their game, isn't it? Um, uh, the the bandwagon effect again is is really I think probably quite strong and quite well used because ninety nine percent of the time it'll be the right thing to do. I think the the point in the article is is perhaps saying the um the it's 99% of the time isn't as good isn't as good as 100% of the time. So it it is that it is that right. piece of trade off. So I think there's um an element here of just how our, our algorithms used in in healthcare and how is AI going to get in there. So is it worth diving into some of that do you think? It is. I, I do want to just wrap up the heuristics bit, right? I mean, you know, we do oh, talk about four bullet points that I've completely missed. That's yeah, okay. That <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I do want to just wrap it up and and say, yeah. you know, that there's this huge it depends factor, right? There's the the personality, the level of expertise and experience that a doctor has that might influence their decisions. It also is influenced by context and conditions of the situation that they're in. And I think all this is important to remember as they're taking into account some of these heuristics. They're looking at these situations through the lens of all this context. And that's something that I think is going to be important to capture when you're looking at artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning, right? And so th those are kind of um, some mitigating factors that we can use to reduce the likelihood of some of these some of these algorithms or heuristics um, 
in the doctor's heads being used incorrectly. So yes, let's talk about algorithms and machine learning. Why don't you jump into it? Because you 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 brought us a great reference here. Well, I, I I do like to um, earn the money, the vast amount of pay you give me for coming and doing these international um, uh, engagements. Um, yes, no, we. I was actually really lucky enough, and it's uh, really nicely coincidental that I led a webinar, uh, chaired a webinar last week with the Chat Institute of Economics and Human Factors, and they um, produced a, produced a white paper, um, and it happens to be a uh, from a special interest group that, that I'm a member of. Um, so see, I'm, I'm just ultimately qualified to be talking about this, except for the fact I've just, I've been bringing in actually a lot of the, the HF side rather than, um, the, the, than the AI side, but there's, um, the use of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence is such a, which is what worries me at the moment is, is such a catch all term because there's many different types now of, um, you know things that come under artificial intelligence so things like machine learning um and things like that and a new field which i think well it's not that new but it's, it's been talked about more and more is um artificial general intelligence so it's worth defining the difference between the two so artificial intelligence is very specific it, it, it's applied in a very um, specific subcase, whereas the artificial general intelligence is something that you should be able to engage with and just almost talk normally, give it a whole lot of random facts, and, and it come out with the right um, the right sort of answers. So it, it can be used in, in the general case, which for healthcare, I think is really exciting because that is the equivalent of your um, emergency doctor um, being given anything and being able to take, it, take in all that information. So there's currently seen as three, three approaches in the, the three different types of AI algorithms that are used at the moment. Um, and so if we dip into them, so the, uh, if I hit the first one, which is basically supervised learning, which is where the data is all, um, sorted and organized before being presented to the algorithm. And the algorithm is there to minimize, is to minimize area, uh, minimize error. So we, we, we training the, the AI to do its, um, to, to do its thing and, and to reduce the, uh, the differences between its own outputs and what is perceived to be the correct output. Do you want to jump into unsupervised learning? Yeah, so unsupervised learning is uh, basically where it independently independently discovers the patterns in the data by itself. And this is the scary one to me because it just kind of results in, <laughs> it's like, how did you figure that out? Uh, it just kind of looks through the data and finds a thing. So yeah, we're talking about how these um, different approaches uh, are kind of used in these algorithms uh, for the purpose of thinking about how we feed it data from the healthcare side of things, right? So when you, when you have that supervised learning, you have um, sort of these, these training sets that doctors will go in and kind of assign and, and uh, make sure that all the parameters are there where unsupervised learning is, hey, we've detected that this patient has a heart disease and we don't know why, but it's mm -hmm. there. And then you have the last one here, which is reinforced reinforcement learning and this is basically um using a reward function right so it's it's given that input data and then the output is measured uh according to that um the success of that output right and so that's kind of in simple terms the three different approaches and so when we're talking about ai and algorithms in this context i think we're mainly or at least I like to think about this in terms of like a decision support system. I think mm -hmm. there's, 
that is what I think of when we think about algorithms and healthcare. We can certainly have these algorithms, especially the unsupervised learning ones. Those are just crazy to me where, you know, it'll it'll come back with a diagnosis and the doctor goes, oh, yep, that that's right. How did you? I didn't even. And it's kind of shocking to everybody. But the the doctor then ultimately makes the call, but that algorithm helped them get there. And so I don't know. Do you want to talk about anything else with with the differences in algorithms and how they impact how, you know, healthcare? Yeah, so the, there's, there's sort of one bit that came up. So when when I went back to my um, original degree, actually, there was, um, we sort of studied um, artificial intelligence at that point, and this is going back quite a few years now. Um, but one of the cases that was leading at the time there was um electra was do um she was um uh, one of one of the leading in in the artificial intelligence realm at that time and she was working in healthcare and it was on lower back pain and they she was developing algorithms to um diagnose lower back pain and and that was all great but actually she she basically related to us the the initial bit of research went through and the it basically came out that a lot of the times that she was the her algorithms were diagnosing lower back pain. Other doctors were going, no, no, that's not lower back pain. That's something else. That's you know, et cetera, et cetera. When it all get then got referred, then actually it turns out that her algorithm was right all of the time, and it was the doctors that were wrong. So when you're looking at the difference between supervised and unsupervised learning um, for AI, this has been something in healthcare that's really important that stuff that has been um, labeled and organized and saying, this is what the outcome is. If it's in diagnosis, it's not necessarily right. So we need to be quite careful about how we're teaching our AIs to uh, to do things um, because we, there's still so much about healthcare that we just don't know. So that's, it's an interesting, it's such an interesting topic to be, to be nailing at the moment because of that, exactly that reason. Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the issues in healthcare uh, from from the artificial intelligence perspective, right? This is this is also coming out of that that uh, white paper that you shared with us, and we'll put a link to that white paper in the show notes too, so everyone can go check it out. Um, but you know, it, it, by there's there's a nice graphic on there that kind of outlines all the different issues, and we pulled out a couple of them here. So automation bias. Um, let's just talk about them one by one. So automation bias is an issue, right? Where you have this over reliance on sort of these aids and decision systems. And it's kind of the human tendency to take the path, the the road of least cognitive effort, right? So you're you're basically looking at these results and going, "Yep, that's right," instead of yep. critically thinking about whether or not that is in fact the correct outcome, or it, kind of what went into that decision, right? We got to carefully craft not only the output, so that way the doctor understands how the system got there, but you know, have them trained on the artificial intelligence system itself so that way uh they they know exactly what goes into it and we'll talk about that with training too but you want to tackle this next one here yeah so explanation um explanation trust is really understanding the output of the ai and have confidence in that decision because if you don't if we do have and it almost goes back to that automation bias as well that um if the computer gives you an gives you an output and says it is this then we're more likely to go all right then that's cool um and uh, move on with it but it, we need to under have a um, it, the ability to interrogate the ai so it tells us what how why and how it came to that decision and the level of trust that it's got in the output because it's for us we'll take it quite digitally and so and say oh it says this therefore it's this but if it's only got say a 50 percent 
um, confidence rating in it, then we need we need to understand that as well to be able to make that part of our judgment. Do you want to take the uh, the next one? Yeah. So the next one here is human AI teaming. And this, in a nutshell, is just basically who handles what part and how graceful is the handoff between each of those parties, right? The human and the AI. And it might be that maybe the AI handles most of it and the human is just kind of there to deliver the news. That could be one model. You also have another model where um, the AI does part of it. It asks the doctor about you know a series of questions. They provide some input, and then it comes back with another output, um, and that would be kind of the the handoff. So we got to think about how exactly the doctor is interacting with the AI uh, in this in this case, and then we also have to think about sort of what parts the AI handles, what parts the human handles. That's that's kind of that whole human AI teaming aspect, just to make them gel together, right? It's like working with a another human being. Everyone has their specialties. Where do you sort of focus effort um, on the system? And that really leads into the next one, which is which is around training, because we've got to this isn't just going to work on day one and and we've got to um we everyone will understand where everything goes we've got to train and practice um working with the with the ai so and the so the, the medical practitioners and the ai working well together doing conducting their own exercises conducting their own training um tr- and almost experimentation as well to understand where it's best employed how to interpret the ai outputs is the ai output exactly what you're what you need and the com- and how how you interpret the confidence levels of what it gets to you. So it's that whole practice makes perfect piece, um, and it's ne- it's really important, I think, um, with the un- understanding how to interact with that AI. Yeah. So so there's interaction with the AI, and then the next one here is well, how does that AI and doctors, you know, that that relationship between staff and patients and AI, and whether or not you know, if an AI has more of a dominant role, does the doctor then do more work away from the patient? And how does that impact the patient's perception? How does that impact sort of, um, you know, the bedside manner? That that whole thing is really important for, <laughs> for doctors. And so that relationship then changes when you introduce artificial intelligence into the mix because that doctor then needs to communicate that back to the patient they need to have some awareness of how that decision about their uh, care was made. And so the doctor needs to be ex- able to explain the AI. And so there's this really complicated relationship between the three. It's a, it's an interesting like triad, right? And then last up, you want to talk about this one? This one's fun. Yeah, so this is something that actually in the human factors perspective, we, we don't really get involved with very, very often, but it's the ethics side of things because this is going to be absolutely uh, critical to us uh, make sure that this is that it's successful so there's a whole bunch of bits where ethics need to be considered so firstly is in the design and the development of the ai itself and there is already proven to be a um, identifiable bias in ai models uh, depending on who's been designing and programming them um so we need to make sure that them ethical issues are ironed out within within these um the issues around privacy so uh, patient privacy patient health um and making sure that they, uh, you know, people's records are um, nicely encapsulated. The the autonomy of the practitioners, so who has the final say, um, 
if the if the um, AI comes out with a radically different um, output, how does that um, compare with what what the doctor says uh, or the practitioner says? Who wins? Um, and fundamentally, it's all about um, understanding what what the what the benefits are, but minimizing harm to patients. And so that whole ethical issue is is providing a whole stream of research that uh, that has still got some way to go. Yeah, and who who who's in the wrong if it's a, a misdiagnosis, right? You know, if the doctor's yeah. going off what the AI said, well, are the developers of the algorithm then at fault for you know malpractice because they you know it, it's a it's a whole complicated thing. So let's get back to this article here. Um, and we'll just kind of go over the research one more time. So they're they're looking at eighty six thousand cases re- records of infant deliveries, and these delivering physicians were again kind of influenced by the current patient, but then also what happened previously. Um, and so, one example that they use in this uh, this article here is that when a when a physician experienced a negative outcome with vaginal delivery, they're more likely to choose to deliver the next baby by cesarean and vice versa. So, you know, this this whole um, we're having complications here, then the next one, we're just going to go straight to C-section because yeah. it's, you know, that that prior influence is then influencing their decision. Yeah, and I think, um, but I think what is really quite neat about the uh, the paper is that they're acknowledging, or they're certainly saying that they're, um, the profession need to acknowledge that this is a problem but it's not the physician's fault. It's the way they've been trained. It's it's the they're leaning on. They've got nothing else at the moment, um, and so you know they they go with the with the best tools that they've got. Um, but now with the advent of AI and and other um, techniques, um, so it isn't just AI, but it, it's straight. You know, just because we say algorithm doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, artificial intelligence. It's just, um, there's, there's other tools out there. Um, we now have the ability not just to go simply with your gut decision anymore um we've got the um got the ability to do, to do it by other ways therefore do we either need to start looking at doing it that way or doing um or pushing it a lot harder so the the sort of finish off with saying that you know managers and other decision makers in business and elsewhere no longer simply go with their gut um, but doctors often remain reluctant uh, to introduce such information when making medical decisions for patients um which kind of makes sense given that it's their um um, it is their profession, and it's also their um, um, insur- their their own personal insurance if it goes wrong. Yeah, I think. Um, I yeah, I I don't know where we go from here. You know, there's there's still a lot we don't know about AI and how it works, and really, you know, all those human factors issues that we talked about in that white paper that you shared with us is is really consider considerations we need to make or take before we implement this full blown you know i think slowly dipping our feet into the waters here is probably the best way to go and slowly changing over time versus this rapid implementation of all these new systems but then it's also like well do you just keeping with the medical analogies do you yank the bandaid off and just jump deep you know, right in. I don't think that's the right approach personally, but, um, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. But, Where do we go from here, Barry? Well, fundamentally now we're in this, in the state of development and trust, um, because 
firstly, the systems have got to be, these AI systems have got to be developed in a way that they're trusted by practitioners, but they're also trusted um, by patients. And in the grand scheme of things right now, they, and it goes back to what I said earlier around, you know, we, we label everything, every sort of tool under this AI banner. If it goes wrong really soon, just because of the immaturity of it, we're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater to keep him with that um, um, delivery um, uh, analogy. <laughs> um, see how we keep linking back? It's like professionalism. Um, you know, we, we, we're going to do that because people, as soon as some big mistakes happen, probably not through the fault of uh, the AI, but it will actually go back to, you know, um, some other issues. Um, we'll end up having everybody be just too scared to engage with it. And if you, if a doctor was to turn around and say, oh, actually, we, I'm going to use use this system, uh, this AI system to help diagnose you, and we, it's already got bad press, then people are going to be against it regardless, just because we don't like technology. So I think it's a watching brief. I think we've got to, we've got to tread carefully in the evolution um, and, the, and the design for it, and we a, a, a softly, softly approach. Um, but you put it out there onto... Um, on yeah. Twitter. What do other people think? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, well, well, let's hear from everybody else. Uh, so we asked the question for tonight's social thoughts. Uh, tonight's episode is all about doctors, algorithms, and analytics. Uh, our social thought for this week, who would you rather diagnose your medical issues? An AI with access to hundreds of thousands of patient profiles or a doctor with years of experience? And Barry, you won't believe this, but out of the, out of all the votes, we had 100% as AI. What? I've got to say, that's surprising. Um, it is surprising, but at the same time, you got to consider our audience. I think, you know, <laughs> we have an audience that kind of knows um, what's up in the field, or at least can infer. Yeah, that, that, that's that's probably true. Um, or maybe have way more confidence in, in AI <laughs> than, than we just profess the, 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 that we do, so... Yeah, well, um, uh, let me ask you: Would you would you rather an AI or a doctor? Depends what it was. Ah, you did. The, it depends. Right. No, no, I did. A, I did a sort of half version of it. Depends. I think if I if I was going, I, if it was something that I was going in for that wasn't, you know, it was, it was kind of run of the mill stuff, and it needs sort of confirmatory and all that sort of thing. I think um, I could sort of see an AI being useful there because because it would do that. Um, maybe if I was got had something really serious like maybe wrong with my brain or something like that, which people, some people say is there already, then um, maybe the AI is, is the good thing there because, you know, you want it to pull in and um, and pull in all, all the facts. So actually that, in both cases, yeah, I probably would go with the AI. That's interesting. I didn't think I would go there. I should talk myself into it. I think I think I'd go with AI too because, because like I said, it's, it's scary how much AI can come up with something based on what mm. it does. And we don't know how it gets there. Um, I do want to bring up one comment here. This is from Katie Jerwicks. I hope I'm saying that correctly. They say, I'd actually choose option three, a healthcare provider who uses assistive automation to support diagnosis. So there's the answer for the night. Uh, should is. we trust computers over our doctor's expertise? Uh, Barry and I say yes, but I think ultimately it'll come down to uh, sort of a mix of both and who handles what. That's still to be determined, but... That's that's the answer for tonight, folks. <laughs> Any closing thoughts on this one, Barry? Yeah, I, I'm with Katie. Katie's right. 
Yeah, Katie's right. <laughs> All right. Thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Kelly School of Business at Indiana University for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, you can join me on Office Hours every Monday where I find these news stories. We do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. Or you can join us in our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these articles. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back uh, with some things around the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. Uh, we're always happy to have you here. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Now, this is where I usually plug more about Patreon, but I've been told by our treasurer that we are putting all of our eggs in one basket uh, with Patreon. So uh, I'm, I, now I'm going to promote the merch store. Did you know that we have a merch store? Some neat designs over there that include it depends shirt show logo like on the hoodie i'm wearing tonight other cool designs based in human factors culture want to support the show and look good doing it go to human factors cast dot media slash p slash store elegantly done i thought did i sell it did i you did but don't (laughs) you need to stand up and show the shirt off show the hoodie off because yeah here you go Oh, I have merch envy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, I will say it's a very comfortable hoodie, and I, I, I don't like doing all this self-promotion, but, dude, this is a really comfortable hoodie. We've partnered with Spreadshirt, uh, and, uh, you know, their, their clothes are actually quite comfortable, and I do enjoy wearing the merch because of that reason. Um, cool. So we had a merch provider in the past that wasn't too great, comfort-wise. Right, I see. All right. Anyway, enough of that. Let's go ahead and switch gears and get into this next part of the show we like to call. It came from. It came from. That's right. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics the community is talking about. This week, it's Reddit. If you find these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're at to help other people find this content. So we have three of them up tonight. We have uh, let's just tackle them one by one here. This first one here is what do you think? are some of the most important questions when hiring a UX designer and or researcher. This is by Oatmeal Ninja on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, also, do you think that a researcher position should be separate from a designer? It's been in my experience that I've hired designers or researchers who are prima donnas and tend to get emotionally attached to their work so they cannot make objective decisions. Barry, let's talk about this. Hmm. Oatmeal Ninja, I think we need to have a chat. Um, so I'll pick out some of these to be to begin with. Um, should should the research be separate from a designer? To be honest, it depends on the size of the project you're doing, and uh, in my 
in my experience, I've tended to pull both together. I could be doing researching one day, I could be do, do designing the next. If the project is big enough, you can separate them out. Um, even then, I don't know whether there's a vast amount of benefit from doing that because most people will be able to do both both roles. Um, but, I mean, God forbid that you get an, um, emotionally attached to your work and you get really bought, uh, bought into the topic that you're doing. I mean, that's just a drama waiting to happen, isn't it? Of course you do that. Everyone does that. If, you do, if you're not doing that, then I suggest you're not doing your job properly in the first place. So, Oatmeal Ninja, um, I think you need to go and take a long, hard look at yourself um, and look at people who are actually getting motivated by the work. They, um, if, if you're not getting emotionally attached, I'd be more worried. Sorry, that made me slightly angry. Wow. I, you, yeah. You're really... You're really uh going hard on oatmeal ninja here let's let's talk about this so <laughs> i think oatmeal ninja's uh problem here is that they're they see this emotional attachment as not being able to make objective decisions about their work um and y- yeah i get that but i mean at the same time if they're good at their job they'll know it, it's one thing to be i think the confusion here is passion versus uh, emotional attachment because you can have passion and look at something with sort of this critical eye still. Right. In fact, I do it with the podcast all the time. I have an attachment to this podcast. I love this podcast, but I still look at it at a critical eye and go, eh, okay, maybe the story that night wasn't so great or, mm-hmm. okay, we could have pulled in some extra stuff here to supplement that. Yeah. I do it in my work too. I'm passionate about it. It doesn't mean that I can't think about it critically. And in fact, I would argue that the people who think critically about it uh, love it more because they want to just make it the best thing that they can be. And those who are attached to the way things are, are just in love with the way things are now and don't really want it to be better. They're just kind of accepting the status quo. Anyway, my advice here, what do you think are some of the most important questions when hiring a UX designer or researcher Um, in terms of making sure that they can do the job correctly? I think. Um, you know, kind of understanding what their process is. I think that is the biggest sort of uh, question that you can ask them is what is your process? Because if you can get into their head, if you can understand their thought process about how to approach a, a decision or how to approach research, how to approach a design, what steps they go through to modify that research or design, how they interact with users, how they interact with developers, how they interact with people on the team. I think those are some of the most important questions that you can ask. Uh, A lot of times I find that some of the stuff that we do in the day-to-day kind of changes. And we talked about this last week, right? Our day-to-day changes quite frequently. It's just a matter of what tools we're using at that time. Um, Process can be relatively the same overall, but again, it just kind of depends on who we're talking to, who we're interfacing with. But that part of it is so critically important that when you're trying to bring someone else on the team, you want to make sure that they can gel with the way that things are done in your organization and that they can gel with you if you are a hiring manager. Anyway, that's my two cents on it. Any last, uh, any last notes? Yeah, I, I think the um, maybe get some examples of stuff they've done before, if that's if that's possible, not always possible. Um, but yeah, that that the whole gelling into your team just because they work well on an, on another team doesn't necessarily mean they're going to work well on yours because you have a different dynamic. Every dynamic's different, um, and yeah, it, it, 
don't be necessarily hung up if their processes don't align to what you already know either because if they're quite successful they might just have a different way of do, doing things um that's also quite good fun all right let's get into this next one here recruiters like you don't have enough experience but let's keep in touch and connect in a couple of years this is by throwaway person 222 on the user experience subreddit and they go on to write, so you want to reject me right now, gain experience at a place who will give me a chance, then come back to you when I suddenly gain more experience? Make it make sense. Recruiters don't know how ridiculous they sound sometimes. Barry, have you encountered this situation where there's, let's just talk about this from the perspective of ridiculous demands from either somebody who's hiring or a recruiter. Have you experienced this? Yeah, and... Uh... I don't necessarily think it's it's uh, an out of order thing, um, especially in the human factors world, because we are we are such a small domain, really. Um, but there are more people coming in, and if recruiters are looking at you and say, "Well, actually, for the position I'm looking at at the moment," because they're going to be looking at multiple positions um, a, a lot of the time, so you might not have the right experience for the position they're looking at trying to fill right now. But um, if they want to keep you on their uh, books for the future, if, if something else more useful comes up then then that's not necessarily a bad thing on the receiving end of it it's frustrating um because you are sitting there going well actually i've got i've got skills i've got ideas i've got all this sort of stuff yes i might not have the experience just why should so you know if you think i'm good enough to um give me a shot at it um so but it's also some of the um so recruiters aren't hf practitioners uh they're, they're not they're not the the teams that they, they do have um a fairly um, standard process that they go through to to get people on board. So, as much as I think I absolutely agree, it's frustrating and and it's hard to hear. Um, I don't necessarily think it's the the recruiter's fault. Um, I think it's it's unfortunately just business. I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, like I, I've definitely seen the advertisements where they're like, okay, we want a someone to work for us for $20 an hour and, you know, have 10 years of experience and also know how every single language of coding and also know how to do research effectively and also know every design program. I've seen those and those are absolutely ridiculous um, yes. kind of <laughs> requirements for a job that I think do come down that, okay, we don't know what exactly we want this role to be. That That's what that reads to me as. In this case here, where they're rejecting based on years of experience, I think from a recruiter standpoint, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I get it, but at the same time, it's it's not it doesn't feel great from the person who doesn't have the experience. Um, and I to me, what this reads as is the person who reached out to you. Their job is recruiting. And if they see you as somebody who fits another position that's similar to that, they don't want to burn the bridge with you. That's what I'm understanding. Um, so if they're looking for somebody with slightly less experience, maybe instead of a senior role, you're looking for more of a junior role, then they want to keep in touch with you because you might be a good candidate for that position. I'm not saying that that's what's going on here. That's kind of just what it sounds like. Um Based on the verbiage that this person is using, uh, reject is pretty harsh. So I'm wondering if maybe they applied to something and the recruiter screened them and that was seen as a reject rejection instead of a, a screening. I don't know. There's there's a subtle difference between the two, but I think it's an important distinction. Um, 
so yeah, I, I get I get the frustration from from this person, but at the same time, knowing how things work sometimes, I get it from the other perspective too. I don't know. It's not a very good answer. And I'm sorry for that, but I, I think, you know, maybe, maybe uh don't maybe don't burn bridges. That's that's my advice. Mm-hmm. Don't burn bridges. If they do have something for you later, they might reach out. Uh any other closing thoughts on that one, Barry? Yeah, I guess I've I've been on that other side as well. I've been that person to say, you're not you're just not the right fit for us right now. I really like you, but you're not there for you know, the the, the type of specific job I'm wanting done, you're just not you don't have the experience that I think you'd be able to go and run with it. Um, but I would, you know, would love to keep in touch. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've been there. I, I don't think anybody's trying to be, um, nasty, or at least I would hope they wouldn't be, want to be nasty because at the end of the day, they're saying, um, you know, we want to keep in touch with you. That's a good thing. They, they, they there's clearly something they liked about your personality and, and generally you, um, they just want to have a bit more, um, experience because it's not necessarily time experience. It's just, um, practical experience of being in a being in the, in the right sort of roles to do the have the right level of seniority to do to do things but it is just life i think yeah it's rough all right let's get into this last one here what changes do you want to see in your operating system barry you picked this one i'm really excited uh this is by sexy yaya 69 on the hci subreddit did you pick it because of the username uh, I, <laughs> I I love usernames in Reddit. It, that, I, think, I think they're just something else. Uh, they're going to write, I'm taking a human-computer interaction course, and the first project is about creating a different start menu for operating systems and then testing and analyzing the results of this new build. Need some inf- inspiration from you all. You can propose simple alterations or completely new innovations, such as creating it as a central pie menu or any other form you can imagine to improve the functionality and approachability of the start menus. Barry, now you picked this one for a reason, so I'll, I'll let you just go ahead and answer this one. Well, I sort of looked, pick, picked it because I thought it was quite useful with the, um, uh, with the with the launch of Windows 11, and they've gone, they've changed the start menu from being left-hand anchored on the, on the lower bar to being central, which on the face of it, I can see that it's, it's, um, it's, it's different. Um, it gives you know it's a, it's a step change, but then I can also see from a design perspective um, if it's all anchoring from the from the center, how is that going to um, look? If it, how's the your tabs going to splay out? That means you're going to have them splaying out from both sides and not moving from a left to right manner. It just starts triggering lots of things in my with my desi- uh, design antenna, sort of saying there's um, there's certain elements that I don't know how they're going to work. Um, in terms of what, in terms of the, the actual question, what do I want to see on my start menu? Um, I think if, if we wanted to be truly radical about it, well, why have the start menu at all? Um, you you only need it there when you are actually going to use it. So if we get more and more into touch screens, then actually you just want to touch them. You want it to disappear until you touch the touch the screen and you start having a. Um, uh, a menu pop up there. I like the idea of having the uh, the pie menu. I've I've actually used that in um, some previous designs I've done um, fairly recently, where you touch and then you you can start splaying out around it. Um, but I, th- I think for me, it's about making sure that you have access to the um, the the core applications that you do um, have, have in a really dynamic way. So if you normally use Word and Excel and that sort of thing. That's what they. Um, that that's what comes up first, and then you can dive in, into that a bit more. But also having the the documents that you've used in the maps really um, accessible really quickly. Um, 
So I think having the, that that level of dynamicism, but then also driving into into some static would be uh, would be really good. Um, and then, in fact, we've had a comment on the um, yeah. from um, Tech uh, Tech Sergeant Chen, who says um, that's why he, uh, they like Linux multiple desktop environments. If you don't know, if you don't like what you have, use another one or make one of your own. Which is kind of fair if you're in into the, if you're into the, uh, the the Linux side of things, then the world is your oyster in that sort of thing. The flip side is also true, though, that the your, your ability to break your new your new oyster is also is also um, quite strong because um, that's almost, that's almost like uh, the Apple Android argument as well. Right. Um, you, you Android gives you yeah, and Android gives you a lot more flexibility, which we I think we we spoke about last week. Um, whereas and, and, um, Apple is is very much you play by their uh, uh, by their rule book, um, which I think actually, you know, the the Apple gives you a lot stronger um, usability in that respect, but less flexibility. So, yes. yeah, yeah. What this is what this this is a tough question for me to answer. So, like, designing the dream start menu is interesting because I think what you said is why why have one um, for for truly radical. Right. Why why even have one? I think if a system can understand the context by which you are working in and understand the next step you need to take, that is ideal because then it's just kind of doing things on its own. It's it's basically predicting your next move. And um, from there, it will pull up the appropriate program or whatever it is that you need. You know, I, I think when when I think about it from my perspective here, um, I do think about sort of the. uh the approach where, uh, especially in, in, I don't know, I, I'm a fan of how games do like a start menu. They, they switch the mode on you. It's not something that pops up or overlays like Mac or Windows. It's something that changes your entire mode. You stop playing the game to go to the next thing that you're doing. And I think that, for me, works because it puts me out of this mode of I'm working and I'm picking the thing out that I need to do. Um, and it's it's tricky to understand exactly what you need at that time, but I think context-based, uh, I, I don't know, programs might help. Mm-hmm. Then there's also like your favorites. So I don't know. There's there's a couple ways to go about it, but I think the, the coolest thing to me is, is the predictive piece of knowing what is... Um, what's coming next in the workflow if you're if you're making a google document well you might need to do research on a topic and so you might need to go to a different tab and or or pull up you know a um a pdf and so it might know based on the content that you're writing what pdfs are relevant to that based on the stuff in your desktop and so it might just suggest those automatically uh you know as an overlay and i think that's that's kind of the dream right um, I do want to get to a couple of these comments here in the chat. Uh, Mads Dune says, I just I just love the synchronization of Mac and Apple. I know how to work a computer, but I don't have the time to delve deep into the topic and learn more, which is probably why I like the simplicity of Mac and Apple. And then uh, Tech Sergeant Chen um, provides an alternative here. Alternatively, you can use different interfaces for specific uses, one for gaming, one for office work, et cetera. And I think that that's a... Uh, that's kind of getting at that desktop uh, perspective, right? Like having yeah. having set desktops for certain modes, right? Like this is my gaming desktop with all my apps for gaming. And this is my, and I like that approach. I think that works. Um, I haven't figured out how to get it work 
working on Mac yet, but <laughs> I know it exists. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I do it for Windows, certainly. You know, I have my podcast desktop. My, oh, see, my... I, I haven't implemented that yet, and I need to because yeah, yeah, for, for exactly this. So I know I know the setup I like now for doing this podcast. I like to I have the setup I like for doing my my podcast, and I have the setup you know like for everyday working and stuff like that. So yes, I, I need to play a bit more. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into this last part of the show. It's just one more thing. It's really where we just have an opportunity to talk about one more thing. Barry, what do you have up this week? So this week has been so cool because I've actually been out in the field doing usability trials um, with real users, real kit in the open air and actually just face to face stuff. It's been so nice to be able to do that. It's it's such a um, um, such a refreshing thing. And along with that, the so when we did the podcast uh, last week. Um, I didn't get my usual sleep in because I was straight down to um, the uh, to deliver two lectures to uh, human factors in aircraft maintenance. Again, that was all face to face stuff. Where not a lot of the lectures I've been given so far have all been um, uh, been remote. Um, so I just go and do guest lectures, and so it was really nice to be able to um, to see people and and get be able to react to them and engage with them. That was really cool. But the one more thing, really, that that's really important and and i need your advice on really is do you upgrade to windows 11 because it's come up on my desktop saying it's ready it's downloaded click Ooh. this button and your your life will be revolutionized but oh it just scares me i don't know whether i don't know whether you should because you because if it doesn't work and you know because i have a you know I've, I've, the setup with my um my mixing desk and and this that and the other what happens if it doesn't work you can't go back and I'm i don't know yeah, I'm I'm waiting. Mine is also ready to go, ready ready to install. Um, I'm waiting on mine. I think uh, the, my biggest hesitation is the same thing as you. There's a lot of settings that I have ready that I don't want to mess with, and I'm planning to do it when um, media outlets like tech media outlets say it's okay to do. Uh, you know, they, there's there's some certain yeah. key features that I'm waiting for that aren't quite there yet, and then also. Uh, you know, it's it's a lot of setup when you upgrade, and hopefully they've streamlined a lot of that. But you know, do it when you have some time. That's that's the big thing, right? So like maybe over the holidays, if you got like a week off or something, just take some time, update your system, and then slowly fix it over the week. Where it, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's not going to be super pressing, right? Yeah, it's the. I think for me, it might have to wait until the new year. I th I think unless we can do some. Um, um unless we can do it i mean the, the the laptop i've got is quite a quite a, a decent one um you know it's relatively new it's just got it this year so it shouldn't have a problem in that respect but it's the like you say it's the, it's the nuances behind it so we shall see it, i might it might be a long weekend job so to upgrade <laughs> it on the friday and then fix it um like say on the, on the saturday and sunday and hope, hope i can get it working again by the monday there you go but enough about me what about you uh, my one more thing is a little thing called M Taylor, um, and this is I, I this is gonna sound like an advertisement. I swear it's not. I'm gonna put an affiliate link in the show notes. You can help the show out, but this is not paid for by them. I just wanted to highlight. It's a cool service, and it really it just it's one of the first times that something felt like magic. So um, basically, what M Taylor is is you get naked in front of a camera, uh, and Whoa, you turn around. Yeah, hang on. You you get naked in front of a camera. You turn around a couple times, and they send you clothes that fit your body perfectly. 
uh, and they use they basically use the camera feed to use that to feed uh, algorithms and AI that then come up with a bunch of different measurements and then you know they cut out based on those measurements and it it feels like magic it feels like magic because you put in this order and then um you know like i'm i'm a big guy and so like finding clothes that fit me well and that i feel good in is hard and so uh it just it's it's amazing you get this you just get the clothes in the mail and um and uh, it just fits you. And if you if it doesn't, they do like the they'll they'll go and sort of do it again for free for you, which is oh, really okay. kind and a great business model. The clothes are a little pricey, um, but you know I think for for the comfort and for uh, the convenience of having something custom fit to you is huge. Um, like I said, it sounds like an advertisement. I just was delighted by the experience and I wanted to share it with you all. Um, I, I will put the affiliate link down there. You can get 20% off. Um, if you want that type of thing, by no means do you have to, again, it's just helps the show and, uh, not an advertisement, not paid for. Um, I think with that, that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, we invite you to check out another episode that we did, uh, 223 on how artificial intelligence can improve learning. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. You can visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. Uh, one, leave us a five-star review. That's You can do that right now. Just go and leave us a five-star review wherever you're watching, listening. Uh, two, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth really helps the show grow. I can't tell you how many people said, I only found you because my friend mentioned you. they listened to your show. And three, consider supporting us on Patreon if you have the financial means of doing so uh, or buy our merch. I don't know. Do that because our treasurer says so. Anyway, as always, the links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you? They want to talk about algorithms. For algorithms, then you need to find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K or come and listen to me interviewing people on my podcast, 12 or to the Human Factors podcast at 1202podcast.com As for me, I've been your host Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch every Monday from 4 to 5 Pacific uh, for office hours and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time It, it depends. depends Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.